Right? Exploit is a common suite that collects exploits. And you just take the exploit and you run it. It uses Ruby and uses a specific client hello. So when you connect via TLS, some firewall detected that is the hello that usually comes from Metasploit, and the firewall is going to drop it, regardless of what you send. And so with Go, it's quite easy if you write your own reverse proxy to just take whatever comes from Metasploit, rewrite some headers, rewrite the client hello, because you can do that, specify the ciphers that you do. So you can clone perfectly the Chrome handshake, and the firewall is going to let you through. And that is one kind of proxy that you do to yourself to make the tools behave, which Go is great at. I mean, I must say, that's scary, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Put on your dark hoodie. Turn off all the lights and join Tom Steele, the author of Black Hat Go, as we explore the darker side of Go. And make sure you listen to the end. We've got a 30% discount code. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Ryer. Today we're talking about Black Hat Go. We're going to teach you how to steal billions of dollars while ensuring that your code remains simple, clear and maintainable. Joining me today, Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello there. How's it going? It's going quite well. I'm actually feeling pretty peppy. You might have heard about the um, there's this virtual Go conference going on uh, in a few weeks. Mm. Uh, I think you might have something to do with it, like uh, maybe you're emceeing or something like that, right? Mm. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll probably be uh, making an appearance and giving a keynote or, or something. Awesome. That's gogetcommunity.com, right? That is correct. On May the 21st. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Well, uh, are you excited to learn about hacking in that? Oh, boy, am I. Yeah, me too. I feel like, yeah, this is going to be quite an episode. <laughs> uh, don't worry, though, we don't have to do it alone, as usual. I'd like to welcome back Roberto Clapis. Uh, Roberto is an ex-security consultant and penetration tester, now a chocolate factory boffin at Google. Hello, Roberto. Hello, hello. Thanks for correctly pronouncing my job title, uh, my actual <laughs> job title. Um, mm. that, that's good. Security engineer at Google. Is the, uh, yes. that's the boring yeah, version. No, but that, that's the old, that's, yeah, who cares But what that? was that? The register called you a chocolate factory boffin, didn't they? <laughs> yes, yes. We found some things in Safari and they weren't happy about that. And they decided to make a funny blog yeah. post about it. <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to put that in the show notes and you can tell us more about it as well later. Because I need to welcome our final guest today. Uh, it's Tom Steele. Tom's one of the authors of the book Black Hat Go and a research consulting directory at Artridis Partners. Did I say that right, Tom? Yeah, you got it good enough. Yeah. yeah. Close enough. <laughs> that works. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to uh, you know talk about uh, all manner of things, I guess, so far. Yeah, well, let's find out what we're going to talk about. It's exciting. Well, first of all, it's nice to kick off to get to know each other a little bit with any working from home tips. We're all working from home a lot more these days. Has anyone got any tips? The best tip that I can give you so far is to always have something to drink on your desk Mm. and uh, a lot 
So you drink, you stay hydrated, and that after a while, automatically reminds you to stand up and go somewhere else, like in another room in your house, so that mm. you also keep the blood flowing. Mm. That's a quite a good little system. You can always tell how much work I've been doing by the amount of cups on my desk. <laughs> they just kind of accumulate over time, over the day. You should garbage collect sometimes. <laughs> you know, I'm excited to talk about the uh, Black Hat Go book because it's not often you get a lot of technical books that have titles like, and this sounds a bit like I'm just doing clickbait, but one of the chapter seven is going to blow your socks off. It's called database. Is it is it databases and file systems pilfering and abusing? I saw it twice. It's something like uh, abusing databases and file systems. Okay, so chapter seven is called abusing and uh, abusing databases and file systems. That is a great title for a chapter. I don't know. I, I have the book right here. I can double check for you if you want. Oh, <laughs> yes, please. the physical one. I know, right? That tree. I didn't know they did those. What have they done? Just printed out the internet. <laughs> <laughs> You should get Tom to sign it for you. Yeah, yeah definitely. Later. later, later, yeah. I don't mean like with a signature. I mean like <laughs> add up all the characters in it and send a <laughs> send a checksum. Oh no? boy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's something about that. Though. Where does it come from, Black Hat? The name. What does that actually mean? I don't know. So, like, you could probably ask a hundred different people and get a hundred different answers. We kicked around a bunch of titles for the book when we were first coming. And I personally wanted to stay away from Black Hat Go, like the, the name Black Hat. So I think our original title that like Chris and I came up with was Adversarial Go, which is probably mm-hmm. more descriptive of what we actually do on a daily basis. Because like the term Black Hat, I wouldn't exactly describe what I do on a daily basis as Black Hat because, you know, I'm obviously always doing it legally with, uh, you know, uh, People know I'm doing these things, right? They're paying mm. to do them on a daily basis. So I'm not right. doing them to, to you know, illegally make money or anything like that, which is probably more what you would think of Black Hat. Uh, mm. But the publisher wanted to sort of relate it to Black Hat Python, which was a Python book that came out a number of years ago. And I think they came out the second edition. It's a really good Python book too. But there's also like... so. You know, in that no starch ecosystem, there's... There, there aren't even, it wasn't like a white hat book, but there's like gray hat... C Sharp, who one of my uh, coworkers actually wrote. Uh, that's a really good one too. But that has a lot more um, like parsing out maybe like vulnerability management style stuff. Also has like you know, SQL injection and, and those sorts of things. So I think more along the terms of like what NoSarch was thinking was like, these are more like attacking based tools versus what I like a, a defender would use. But typically with white hat, black hat, that historically has been more like criminal versus, you know, authorized type of testing. However, we all go to like Black Hat, the conference every year, and we, most of us are not criminals anymore. Mm. Plus, <laughs> it probably boosts sales too, right? <laughs> it would be, you know, it was like, a, it's not dull and boring. Um, mm. You know, it's like, it's more of a, yeah, you're, you're going in the offensive. You're going you're gonna to poke holes in people's systems. That sounds way more fun to me. Yeah, and I think, so like the goal for the book, the, like when we got asked like who the audience was, the audience wasn't people that know Go already. And I don't even think it's people like that know Go from the Go community. Like certainly if they wanted to go pick the book up and like see something, like expose themselves to some things they might they might not be exposed to, that'd probably be a good choice too. But the audience was really like the people that I work with, you know, in the security industry uh, or maybe people are just getting started or they want to learn a new language and then they want like useful tools that they can go apply. Because, you know, if you pick up a programming book and it's just strictly, you know, this is how you do X, right? Like this is how you handle arrays or like this is how you do a for loop. That's great. But if you give yourself projects that you can like actively use in your work, those tend to help you learn the language quicker. And so that was really what we were going for. Yeah. So it just sort of spurred off of my history with Go, which was I started using Go, I think seven or eight years ago. It might be like the first commit like to GitHub where we had a tool that was written in JavaScript using Node, and I basically used Go to rewrite that. And that was my first introduction. And after that, I kind of just it sort of became the tool for everything. You know, obviously it doesn't handle everything that we need, but it handles most of the tasks. And I'm very, I became very productive with it. So um, after an extended period of time, I felt like uh, we could write that we could do a book like this. And my co-authors, Dan Coatman and Chris Patton, like 
they're also amazing Go developers as well. And, you know, they certainly, the book wouldn't have came to a close without those guys. Uh, certainly Dan pushed it to the end for us as well. So if I may give sort of a review of this book, like I, I've been having fun with it, honestly. It has shown me different use cases, right, for, for Go, like that I typically don't think about, right? I'm like, ah, you, you can do that with Go. And, and you like, I, I now I have a whole new appreciation for the net package. And I'm like, I'm blown away by some of the things you can do. And I've been having fun with it, you know, extracting bits and pieces there and meetups and teaching people about, you know, uh, writing port scanners and building proxies and things. I mean, it's been incredibly fun to really like having these kinds of projects where you're just not you're not just learning syntax, right? You're not just learning the mechanics of Go, but you have things to build and like that kind of fun. I don't know. I've been I've really been enjoying this book. So kudos to you and the others. This is a really great book. I'm having fun with it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I think like the I think that's probably like the most useful uh, aspect of Go for us is the ability to just interface with TCP like and do it very quickly um, and do start doing interesting things like writing like odd proxies <laughs> uh the amount of times like that we've been trying to like get out of a network how to write some crazy proxy to get around things has been we've done a lot doing quite a bit <laughs> so yeah it's awesome that has been basically my experience with go uh during a penetration test we needed to build a weird proxy that needed to take a web socket on one side and needed to con- downgrade it to a tcp connection on the other side because that's what we got because when you do penetration test you get going whatever you get going. And so we needed to write a proxy and I just started learning Go. And I said, well, one is a netcon, the other one is an IO read write closer. I can just IO copy them together and let's see if it works. And it works. <laughs> and it was my first experience with Go in writing a tool that I actually needed at work. And it's a blast because you just use Go stuff that is in the standard library. Actually, in your book, I think most of the imports, you don't even mention them because just running Go import on your snippet would import all the right packages because you just use a lot of standard library and some external packages here and there, which I really appreciate. Yeah, you can get away with, like you said, uh, you you implement a reader, you implement a writer, and all of a sudden you've got a tunnel. (laughs) Yeah. And we've done that across various, you know, you can do it all, you can do it at any layer. Uh, so if you want to do command and control over S3 and then write that back to WebSocket, it's pretty much just, you know, piping piping Legos together type of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. We used to use Python, both for capture the flag competitions and at work. But at some point, it would just become so complicated to handle the multiple connections and concurrency and all the th- threadings. Plus, you need Python to be installed on the on the system that you're attacking. When instead, with Go, you can cross-compile to whatever weird baffling architecture you find, and you just push the executable, which was a big plus. Yeah, for sure. Like that's been. I think that's been. I think that's probably like the most welcome feature is you know obviously lack of dependency. So. You know, for, for, the, for the people that like aren't, aren't familiar with this stuff, um, so a lot of the stuff that we do, we work together as a team. And the projects like can range, like different type of things, but like one of the things that we do a lot is like we're trying to attack a company, right? So this is like a bank or something like that. Like let's just say hypothetically. And uh, we're not necessarily testing like a specific application. Like we do a lot of that stuff too, but we're trying to get into this company any by any means necessary. And so... Once we gain like code execution on, say, like an end user's workstation, right, like a Windows PC, that's when like the you know the fun really begins because you have to figure out how to get out of these networks that sometimes are locked down, and that's where like Go becomes in handy quite a bit. Is when you you need something really quick and you need to compile it to Windows with no dependencies. That can that's that's great. It's a great feature, right? And so it's just been great. Or you know maybe you're working with a coworker and you have some little utility. And they want to run it. They, they need to run it like right away, or like you're you're moving fast. Sometimes having them install Python and then install the dependencies and handle all that can be like a nightmare because now you're not just saying, "Here's my tool, you know, use it." Uh, you're basically, you know, here's package management, or like maybe they've never used like you know whatever language you chose to write it in, right? Like, I don't know. Ruby Gems seems to be the most historically yeah. awful. One, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, how much time did you spend trying to make a gem work for your Metasploit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that has been one of the worst experiences in my life. And yeah, Go doesn't betray in that sense. 
especially after a while. Mm. After a while, I started building a library uh, that I just would use for scripting because Go is also good for scripting. And uh, in that library, I had the utility functions like some of the tunnels that you explain in, in your book. I would never dream of building in some of the things that you wrote about. But I, I have these utility libraries and you just pull it in and you call it and it just gets you running in a short time. And it's also nice to see that it doesn't require that much, that, that big machines or beefy computers, it just runs on very low-end low hand hardware. I once had to do a penetration test from a Raspberry Pi, and I was grateful that Go was low footprint. Also, low compile times helps a lot, too. <laughs> yep. I've been playing around with Rust. We won't get into that, but it's uh, <laughs> just this is a go podcast, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. So I kept thinking when going through the book, and I'm still going through it. I've kind of been jumping around a little bit and then learning about the different projects and whatnot. It kind of begs the question: like, how did you pick uh, some of these projects? Because a lot of them are like really fun. So there's like credential harvesting. There's a key logging. There's like building proxies to get around corporate network. There's there's uh, interacting with Metasploit over RPC. I mean, there's writing DNS tunneling. How how do you pick those? To me, like really fun projects. Like, do do you pick the projects and say, okay, well, what are we teaching here, or do you say, okay, we need to teach these things? What kind of projects would would sort of uh, convey that what you're trying to teach? Yeah. So. Um I would say like the majority of the chapters came from thinking about how do we use Go during like our testing um, and what kind of utilities do we have we written uh, and do we know a lot about and like how is it useful for us? So pretty much every single thing in that book, we've used that. Like there's, there might be some something small that we've used. Now, the hard part was taking perhaps a bigger tool, a bigger project, and then pairing that down to something that's like that you can actually digest in the book. And so, you know, the stuff in the book is like really useful, but it's all basically getting you started on what can I do in addition to this? So, but everything in there is pretty much like we had used that first, like there's something in there that we had used for a test. And then there's a few stuff that like, obviously some of the guys like are, they like have like a ton of expertise. Like Chris Patton uh, wrote the steganography chapter, and like I am not the guy to talk about that, but like he has a long history with that sort of thing. But yeah, so and then basically like we we built a huge list, and then we kind of pared it down to what we could actually fit in the book. There's some stuff that didn't make the cut quite because it would it would have been a little bit too much background, a little bit too much lab setup type of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Like some of the VoIP stuff that you can do, it's mm-hmm. really awesome, but. It, you can't really set up a virtual environment for some of that stuff. Right. Mm, right. But yeah, so I, so I think that's kind of how we went about it. Like, for example, like the DNS proxying, like we do that a lot. So, you know, that came from like, so we use a, we use a lot of tools that, to do what we call command and control, which is basically like we have a binary that's, we have a payload, I should say, that's running on a system that we don't control. Uh, and that's communicating back with us. And there's, you can do that over multiple protocols, but one of the great ones is DNS because it gets out of most networks and, you know, sort of things. But a lot of the tools that are used there, they don't necessarily handle like redundancy or uh, proxying natively. Like you're basically client to server. That's it. Um, but if you can use Go to write up a quick proxy that maybe fans those out or at least gives you a layer uh, in front of those, that's a, you know, that was great, a great way to do it. So when you talk about proxies then, is the purpose to intercept and sort of have a look at and kind of spy into the traffic? Or is it to control it or modify it in some way? Or does it sort of depend on what you're doing? I think there's room for both with Go. I, th- I think there's been times when we've needed to, well, like we're testing, say we're, say we're not doing like sort of like this adversarial type of testing of an entire company. Say we're like just testing some software and we need to get in front of the TLS stack and start doing interesting things there with inspection. Like Go is great at that because you can actually, like it's so easy to copy the existing TLS package from the standard library and modify that and then use that in your own code. Like that's really easy to do at Go. I'm sure it might be easy to do in our languages, but for me, it was easy to do in Go. Very simple. And so we've done that before where like, maybe some clients implementing TLS in a really weird way. And we've had to do that. But for the most part, I think for like, for my use case and the stuff that you'll see in the book, it's more uh, like shaping traffic. 
like being able to get in and out of networks and, and, and around and, and move things. So think like, you know, interesting style of reverse proxies. Since you mentioned TLS, rewriting the TLS package, one thing that I wrote a proxy for was that Metasploit, when you use it, Metasploit is a common suite that collects exploits and you just take the exploit and you run it. It uses Ruby and uses a specific um, client, Hello. So when you connect via TLS, some firewall detected that is the hello that usually comes from Metasploit and other things, and the firewall is going to drop it regardless of what you send. And so with Go, it's quite easy if you write your own reverse proxy to just take whatever comes from Metasploit, rewrite some headers, rewrite the client hello because you can do that, specify the ciphers that you do. So you can clone perfectly the Chrome handshake and the firewall is going to let you through. And that is one kind of proxy that you do to yourself to make the tools behave, which Go is great at. Yeah. I mean, I must say, that's scary, dude. (laughs) You know, like, honestly, I mean, I knew we were going to, you know, this was going to be a fun episode, but some of the things, really, some of the things you can do, and I've seen sort of talked about in this book and the stuff you're mentioning now is, like, you can do that stuff with Go. It, It really blows my mind away. How much time does your team spend building and maintaining internal tooling? I'm talking about those behind the scenes apps, the ones no one else sees, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, maybe even the tool your data science team hacked together so they can provide custom ad spend analytics. Now these are tools you need so you build them, and that makes sense. But the question is, could you have built them in less time, with less effort, and less overhead and maintenance required? And the answer to that question is yes. That's where Retool comes in. Rohan Chopra, Engineering Director at DoorDash, has this to say about Retool. Quote, the tools we've been able to quickly build with Retool have allowed us to empower and scale our local operators, all while reducing the dependency on engineering, end quote. Now, the internal tooling process at DoorDash was bogged down with manual data entry, missed handoffs, and long turnaround times. And after integrating Retool, DoorDash was able to cut the engineering time required to build tools by a factor of 10x and eliminate the error-prone manual processes that plague their workflows. They were able to empower backend engineers who wouldn't otherwise be able to build front-ends from scratch. And these engineers were able to build fully functional apps in Retool in hours, not days or weeks. Your next step is to try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. me wonder then is is this book potentially arming people with information that they could use to do some harm with probably uh, and what's the sort of what's your ethical position on that <laughs> tom so i'll put it this way oftentimes the best people that get into the like hacking but i'll just call it like security industry like the offensive security industry the best people often come from development roles like one of our guys, uh, Ryan Hansen, he lives in Idaho with me. And uh, when I first met him, he was basically, he was a developer working in Boise, but he has become like one of the best security people that I know because he understood the software at a level that you just don't get by just only doing security, right? So all hacking is, is really just understanding the underlying mechanisms and then thinking about how you can subvert them. And so like... Showing someone like how to do like SQL injection, for example, like that would be more like of a script kitty type of thing, right? And like you can go read about that stuff, but like the best way to understand like SQL injection is to go write your own SQL package. And that's a great way to handle it because now you know how to defend it and you know how to attack it. I don't have any qualms about uh, ethically teaching. Uh, teaching <laughs> yeah, there, there is one more ethical standpoint, which is if you put a book out there, the attackers and the defenders have the same amount of knowledge, right? Mm. If instead this knowledge is just shared across attackers, maybe the defenders, which usually are software engineers, don't get access to this. So they might mm. not know about this stuff. And I found that putting information out there is usually um, good for defense, even if it is aggressive 
or black hat or adversarial uh, knowledge. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like that answer is legally watertight, Roberto. Have you actually had a lawyer check over that <laughs> sentence? Because I think you've nailed it. Well, it's so like one of the things that we deal with a lot is bypassing uh, antivirus or EDR controls, right? So you have something running on your system that's supposed to prevent code execution and payloads from escaping and all these things. I don't actually have a problem teaching people how to bypass those things because if we bypass them, it's a game of cat and mouse. Like those companies will improve their detections and they'll actually come up with detections that maybe work or they won't advertise detections that don't work or are easily bypassed. Right. Cause it's one thing to say like, Oh, well, you know, like, you know, you can say like, we have this you know, machine learning algorithm that blocks all this stuff. And it's like, well, not really, you know, <laughs> not really. It turns out if I just name my binary world of Warcraft.exe, like, just kind of works right those are like those sorts of things people just immediately <laughs> click it yeah. yeah yeah like i think you know the ability to buy identify and bypass these controls just makes the defenses stronger and that's how we evolve yeah that defense could be used to uh, excuse any crime <laughs> as well <laughs> but yes i take you I do so take true I have broken into physical banks before, uh, and yeah, that's that's fun stuff too. But uh, yeah, you should you should always get approval prior to attacking uh, a network or physical location. Yeah, uh, I was waiting for that bit after you said that you broke into banks. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do this stuff. You don't want to do this stuff. Like I, you don't want to be doing this stuff unauthorized. Uh, set up virtual labs and and that, that sort of thing. Uh, mm. That's definitely the way to go. I wouldn't say go attack random websites, but like. There, there are programs like HackerOne and, and BugCrowd and stuff like that where you can go, you know, get approval to, to test those sort of things, even if you don't have experience. We'll bleep out those the names of those pieces of <laughs> software. Although this book, apparently you can just use the book. Oh, no. Well, those are, those are sites like where anyone can go, like, sign up to do, like, security testing of sites, of websites. Gotcha. They facilitate. Yeah, and those are collectors of programs, uh, bounty programs, in which you go there and you see which companies will pay you to do uh, the tests on their systems. You attack their systems, and if you find a bug, you get paid for it. It's not usually that high of a um, pay, uh, but it's nice when companies put it out there. So is it fair to say that the things that do make it into the book, such as this one, are the things that are at this point well-known, right? Is there new ground being broken? And I, I'm going to go and assume, like, yes, to some degree, but please do elaborate. Is there a new ground being broken in, in I don't want to say black hat, but... Or is it like a mix? Is it like a remix of different uh, uh, exploits to get to new things? There's no sort of zero days in this book. There's they're all they're all well known techniques, and uh, I did want to put something in there that I was advised not to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, so cool. it was how to bypass like a certain product, and they're basically like, mm, you can't do that. Like, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> we won't. We should ask uh, um, our, our folks at Changelog how how um, airtight our our <laughs> show. <laughs> legal stances we didn't send tom the link for this <laughs> zoom <laughs> so there's your answer so the book talks about things in, in generalities right and, and yeah they're known techniques they're known they're known flaws and i think again if you're on the defense side if you're doing software you know development knowing the attacks is definitely better than not knowing them hmm. for example you want to know how to do sql injection so that when you're uh writing your application you don't develop with that and you always want i mean I think if you're writing software, you always want to sort of be like, well, what can happen if someone does this? I think that's really, those are really good questions to ask, right? Yeah, that might be why you say that developers make good security engineers, because when it's your job to kind of defend against it and you realize how hard it is, maybe you just think, you know what, I'm just going to go on the other side of this. Because uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know if that's any in any way kind of helps that. but Yeah, so a long, long time ago, another company I worked for, we were trying to basically bring up a bunch of people to, up to speed on web application security. Uh, and the typical way you do that is you basically just build a vulnerable web app and then you teach them all the offensive techniques that you can. But I actually took it the other way where I made them build a web app and then implement the defenses because I felt that mm -hmm. was the best way to get an in-depth knowledge of how to, of how to, how to identify and then possibly like bypass those defenses, right? It does. And that works with a really love is when you teach security knowledge to software engineers and you see that a software engineer that maybe didn't have a certain concept, just start clicking into it and it goes like, hmm. Because once I was out um, at dinner with a friend of mine who is a extremely 
good software engineer. And I was talking about cross-site request forgery, which is one kind of vulnerability. And after a while, he was like, hmm, I have to go. And just <laughs> walked out. <laughs> he was like four people, four people, <laughs> four people, and he walked out and he deployed a fix. And he was like, "Thanks for that. I didn't know about that." Yeah, <laughs> that was the best reaction. Well, okay, so so I'm seeing a lot of parallel with sort of operations, like in in my line of work, and 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 I do SRE currently. So I've found that developers and engineers they tend to think of sort of the operability of something like towards when they start needing to like ship it right it's 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 so it's like it's like a concern like ah, yeah, i'll worry about that when i get to it right and then you know, we sit down i'm like well have you thought about this have you thought about that right before putting this thing into production they're like oh yeah let me go back and fix it so it's almost like security right and like you know making sure that your software isn't vulnerable to the some obvious things it sounds like this is also one of those things where you know as an engineer you focus on building features and then you go sit down with the security review team and they start poking holes in your thing and you're like ah, oh, now i gotta go back and, and and plug those holes right so is there like the art of engineering requires so much more than just writing features right and i'm seeing this parallel in this in, in this talk yeah i agree i think that you obviously want to try to design your feature with security in mind from the beginning however i am very sympathetic to that to like basically to having to just get something running like that's another flaw that you see a lot in the security industry too is the other like the exact opposite where they come in and they basically go, this has no security, but they're not thinking about the fact that it works or it needs to work first. You know what I mean? And so like, there's a lot that goes into building and just making a product run that sometimes you need to be able to give up a little bit of security as well while you're, while you're getting that going. So I think there's a happy medium and that that medium is constantly moving depending on basically like your risk yeah, I wrote an application once and I did something wrong and basically couldn't sign in. It was the most secure application I think of. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly. So yeah, secure, it, it's unusable. It, but it just didn't work at all. Yeah, so it was just a bit too secure. And that was how I was pitching it. If anything, we've made it a bit too secure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it does. Well-designed APIs um, oh. are made in a way so that make, using them in a secure way is easier and less effort than using them in a wrong way. And mm -hmm. that's usually what a library designer tries to do. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, people are going to go for the easy road because they have to deploy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they, of course, have to know what those things are. And that's where I think a book like this comes into play. Is Go good as a kind of foundation for writing secure code? Is it because I've, I've heard different things said on this subject. How does Go stack up when it comes to security? Yeah, I think, again, like you'll probably get a bunch of different opinions on this. Um, my particular opinion is I think that it's, I think it does a lot of things correct. And I think the way people that are probably using it, uh, I think it's a good, I think it's probably a good thing to grab. The fact that you have to be pretty explicit about things helps, helps quite a bit. So, you know, the compiler will help you with a lot of bugs, right? And then, yeah, I think, you know, the fact that it's statically typed, and yeah, it just makes you be explicit. You have to explicitly handle lots of different things, right? Like you, perhaps I'm not going to get into this, but the lack of generics probably helps, right? In, in some of those things, it makes the code a little bit easier to trace and that sort of thing. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and I think the Go standard library, like I think it does, it does most things correctly as well. So for example, like code execution, like remote codecs, like calling like command exec. The fact that there isn't a version of that where you can just provide like a string with the arguments, basically, right? Like that's a secure design in and of itself. Yeah, and also if you look at the SQL package and the HTML package, like the SQL package makes you use prepared statements or parameterized queries. You have to try very hard to write. You have to yeah. basically pass it <laughs> format strings or something like that. Yeah, you have to, yeah. you have to and, know what you're doing. Yeah, to screw it up there. Oh, see, that is cool then. Yeah, the HTML template uh, does contextual auto-escaping. Yes. I think Go was one of the first languages in the open source world that had it. Maybe there was a Java library by Google, but... If you go check out the documentation for that library, you'll basically see a reference to a paper about contextual, contextual aware encoding, and then no one, basically, I don't think any other language read that paper and implemented it. Because you'll, you'll, I'll talk about it 
I'll talk about it with when I'm doing software assessments. <laughs> I'm like, well, you should do context aware and coding. And they're like, what's that mean? You do HTML. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so for anyone not It'll- familiar, this is where when the template's rendered, it knows if it's putting it inside, say, an attribute yeah. versus in the body right. as as HTML to be seen and things like that. So it, it right. yeah, it does ex- does different things depending on the context. Yeah, and interesting, basically interesting things can happen if you HTML encode data into like a URL parameter type of thing, right? Or JavaScript. Yeah, I, I maintain the package and every time I have to send a CL to fix some things, I always shiver a bit because it's so precise and so well done and has to have no bugs because any bug there can become a vulnerability that is so um, <laughs> disquieting to add code to that. Also, the paper that you were talking about, um, Tom, I think is like several tens of pages of schemes and very hard to read uh, text. So, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not for everyone. Well, the Go team read that kind of stuff for breakfast, don't they? <laughs> so um, that's, that's, that's what I like because it is it, solved for us. And as developers, we get to just use it. Right. But, but so thinking about that, then, are there, are there any common gotchas? Um, and actually, this, is, this was a question I got from Kamal on Twitter. He, he asks, what are the most common mistakes that developers make that lead to exploits and security yeah. vulnerabilities? Yeah, so I, th- I thought about this. So at Tredis, we've actually tested quite a number of Go applications. So like, you know, we do a lot of software security type of things. And so the things that I see, and I was going to go into that, it is a, it's, this is actually a nice feature of Go. Like, for example, like say you want to take JSON and you want to move that into a struct that you eventually want to insert into a database, right? This is like a very, like, common thing, right? The nice thing about Go is that you are explicitly defining the fields that you want in that struct, right? So you're not going to get random fields. Like for example, if you were using something like Node, we see this a lot where they basically take request.body, if you're familiar with that, and they put it, slam it into a database, and now you've got real props in your hands. So what I see is that that actually works quite well, right? Because now you you know the object that you want, and then object in quotes, right? And now you've also defined the field types. You know that what's coming in is going to be a string. Sometimes it might, you know, cast energy to a string depending on, you know, the library that you're using and that sort of thing, right? But you are defining at least the data types that you want coming in. So the stuff that I see from that, just from that end, is sometimes you have a struct that represents, you know, something that's in the database, a user item, right? If you serialize that directly into the database, directly from JSON, you've got something called mass assignment, right? Where you're basically not filtering the fields that you expect because your form might take three fields, right? That define the user. Maybe let's say the first name, the last name, uh, and the email address, right? However, what if you have another field that's like a Boolean, is admin or something like this, right? Just because your form doesn't provide that value doesn't mean that the user won't provide that. And when you serialize that JSON or that form value even into the struct and then you put that struct in the database, you've got a serious problem on your hands now, right? Because now they're starting to modify objects and things like this. So we see that quite a bit. Uh, SQL injection, we don't see. Don't see that a lot. Uh, Cross-site scripting, don't see that if unless, you know, we've seen some really nasty bugs when people are writing their own templating engines. I've seen some particularly nasty oh. ones. Oh. <laughs> One actually resulted in code execution. Yeah, so this particular instance was basically they had a partial template that would load the user input from a database, right? And then that partial template would then get rendered into a parent template. Uh, and because they took that value as trusted, that you could put code in there, right? And so you had like this double eval type of situation. But I think those are few and far between. I think most of the Go things that we're testing, people aren't actually using templates to render server-side anymore. They're mostly using like JSON or other services. However, I would, st- I would probably stick to the standard Go template, or at least something that wraps that pretty thinly. That's just my opinion. But we don't see a lot of that stuff. So we see that mass assignment issue. For whatever reason, like cross-site request forgery, we see the protections implemented, but like often incorrectly. Yeah. If I might add, I also saw that a lot because people don't have it in the standard library. It's in X, Mm -hmm. uh, CSERF token. So people don't see it. People don't know about it. And so far, I've found that to be one of the most common vulnerabilities in Go applications. Mm. What yeah. should you do? Be careful. <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. Basically, whenever you take a request that is state changing for your server, 
so that afterwards your server will do something different. For example, if you take a search query, it's probably not stage changing, but if you get a submission of like a subscription or some user data, you might find that to be state changing. You need to use the XSRF token package to protect your form. Basically, there needs to be an extra parameter that you strip away, but it needs to be there and needs to be tied to the user and to the session. Otherwise, attackers can craft those requests. I will link the package in the uh, podcast. Yeah, and my advice there is, you know, the, the CSRF packages themselves are actually good. It's when you try to get clever. So my suggestion is like be explicit with if you're like if you're building an HTTP application, build a handler that accepts only a post request. Don't process uh, like a head and a get in a post in the same handler because that's when you're going to end up with some lot. Like what I've seen is like they protected the post verb with CSRF, but they will process a head with the same value. Right, so that can be a big issue mm. as well. I'm just going to go. So yeah, so CSRF, like some CSRF bypass stuff uh, is one. Mm. We see a lot of like, like uh, they want to implement uh, like course headers, right? And I've seen some like, really interesting bypasses there where you're not using like the correct regex, but a lot of that stuff has been resolved. Yeah, okay, but to be fair, course is hard. Like, no, it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. was not made to be understood by humans. It, it, <laughs> No, of course, was a big mistake. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. <laughs> yeah, every time I have to go explain one of these bugs, I go like reread the Mozilla documentation so I don't say anything <laughs> stupid. I do the same. I think we already got a Roberto's on Pablo opinion. <laughs> <laughs> on the idea of being explicit, like if you are building your API to only take in JSON, don't accept anything else other than JSON. Like that, they, right. Like there's no reason to sit there and parse like text plane or URL form encoded input if you are only wanting to use JSON. And I haven't seen a lot of that in the Go web frameworks where like they require that level of explicitity. I've written something that I can link later that does this like on a per handler basis, which I think is the way to do it. I actually stole a lot of these ideas from the author of Happy JS, which they do. Like if you want to go look at a framework that implements a lot of things well, go look at that framework. Happy JS, uh, Iran Hammer has done an excellent job with that. But yeah, validate your, like validate all your inputs too. Like don't just depend on like the struct mapping. Like the, if you're accepting an email address, make sure that's an email address. I'm not super happy with the val- the way the validator libraries in Go work. There is one that's pretty good. Like at least it gives you like good definitions, but then you have to go write your own wrappers and things like that, which I don't know. That might be just the story of Go web development in general, though, right? Is like you got to implement yeah. a bunch of stuff yourself. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I hated the most is the content type. In Go, if you don't set any content type in your responses, it will still work, probably. Because the Go server tries to guess based on the response content what is the content type and will set it on the response for you, which means that if an attacker can somehow make the server respond with something that looks like HTML but is instead JSON, the server will set an HTML content type, even if your endpoint only returns JSON. So as Tom was saying, you should only uh, accept JSON if you expect JSON. Same thing the other way around. If you want to return JSON, set the content type. Yeah, yeah. Being explicit is definitely helpful. Okay, so when you say that, there's something that immediately comes up to mind, and, and that's the fact that most developers, basically, there's, there's always this bias towards, oh, easy to get started, easy to get going, just grab this thing, drop it in your code, and you know, if you run into any issues, go to Stack Overflow, copy, paste, whatever you find, and then go, right? You get the job done, right? Like, there's all this sort of emphasis on easy, easy, easy. And not enough on do you know actually what it is that you're you're putting in your code base right now, right? So the frameworks, you know, they tend to hide and make things easy. And you know, like I remember when back when I was doing Rails work, there were articles about how Rails basically prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot from a security standpoint, right? Like you can't get a, a little Bobby Tables kind of situation in your system if you're using Rails, right? Because you're hoping that the framework is going to take care of these things for you, right? But at the same time, like when I think about it, I'm like, well, shouldn't I know as a developer, like why that something is working, right? Or, or, or said it is working, right? Like, there's the, in order to be explicit about, you know, which is the advice we're giving here, in order to be explicit 
right? That means you kind of have to dive deeper. You kind of have to go lower, right? Basically leave the abstractions of the framework basically behind, get deeper in order to know exactly what's going on, right? There must be some sort of happy medium there. I'm not sure where it is in this context, the context of this conversation, but is your advice to sort of default to the explicitness versus relying on packages and frameworks? Personally, I think that is if a framework is well-designed, like for example, Rails give you gives your hand uh, in Ruby. If a framework is well designed or a package is well designed, like the HTML template package, you should not know. Like you should be able to use it and not have vulnerabilities. That's how a framework should be done. But then, if you want to do an extra step, for example, in the HTML template package, there are some types that tell you this might cause a security issue. It's written in the type. If you use this type, you're exposing yourself to a risk. That's the time when you need to go back and reread the entire thing and understand the threat model, understand how those features combine and everything else. Because at that point, you're on your own. <laughs> I think that I definitely think that like there's things that you shouldn't implement yourself. Um, and I definitely think you should rely on, well, I think you should rely on packages, you know, if you can, that you trust. And are from like trust, like from trusted sources. I think, but you got to remember if you if you import something, you're now responsible for it. And so, you know, with Go, we've seen some interesting things where like some packages were overriding the user agent header and HTTP clients and things like this, and like you don't know that it's doing that, or they're opening files in the background, and you don't even look because you're just <laughs> like well, this is the thing that I wanted to do, right? But I don't think you should implement everything yourself. When I meant like be explicit, I meant more. Be explicit in what you accept as valid input from an unknown source. Uh, don't trust the input coming in, and you know interrogate it as much as reasonable before you know processing it. Yeah. So yeah, like in relation to that, like we see good encryption, like good use of encryption. Like no one's writing their own version of AES, but then I also see like people using it incorrectly. So the difficult thing with Go is people aren't writing. Typically, if, if, they're, if they're leveraging Go, they're doing something probably pretty interesting, pretty difficult. It starts like, you know, like they're breaking new ground in their application because this isn't just like, oh, I can just use WordPress and write a little plugin that does it, right? Like they're breaking new ground. They're doing something tough. And so you might have to use encryption there. And so, yeah, I do see quite a bit of like basically using encryption without validation. Yeah, stuff like this. Don't really see hashing used used incorrectly for whatever reason. Like people seem to be pretty good at that. And then I guess like the individual flaw that you won't see in other languages for the most part is like unbound concurrency is huge. And so what I mean by that is like let's I'm gonna put this in context of HTTP just because it's the easiest one for me to like relate to. But like you have an HTTP handler and you accept an array and then you launch a Go routine for every item in that array and then process that. We've seen that quite a bit, and that always leads to trouble. <laughs> trouble, because <laughs> uh, I think yeah, the, like the, the request limit on Go is like ten meg, right? So you can imagine an array of ten meg. Uh, you can generate quite a bit of Go routines that way. Mm-hmm. Hi there. This is John Calhoun, one of your Go Time panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. It's 
funny because you think of this stuff often as like hacking and it's all low level. If you believe the movies, of course, it's like 3D cubes that have to fit together. <laughs> when it all lines up and lights up, you know you've hacked in somehow. And you need a wine, you need a wine too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you sort of think of it as being a very alien process but when you talk about that it's that's a very everyday thing of you know i'm sure most of our listeners will have dealt with json coming into some endpoint and done exactly the kind of things that you're talking about so it's interesting that it's worth thinking just the very practical ways of abusing something as well as things that are down at the tcp layers that you you, you might not be exposed to too often yeah, I mean, I think I think things that you get when you get down to like the TCP layer, if you're talking about like, you know, the sort of like in the movies type of thing, or like these are relevant items, like, you know, such as buffer overflows and memory corruption vulnerabilities. You just don't have those and go, you know, of course, you would want to audit and be careful when you're calling C libraries and go, mm. right? And if you're using unsafe, you know, it's called unsafe for a reason, right? <laughs> if you're taking in like input from an untrusted resource and then passing that to a C library that you're wrapping, that could be disastrous. Uh, don't see a lot of that though. Just for whatever reason, like we don't see a lot, whole lot of uh, the need for people to wrap uh, C libraries. And I think that's because Go makes it so easy to work with. Seagull is terrible. Yeah, Seagull is pretty terrible. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> What's that? It's, my, it's more secure. It's not, it's not too bad. We use I use it quite a bit, but it's not too bad, but it's definitely not easy. But yeah, I just don't see a lot of that. I think most people, if they if they find themselves reaching for a C library, they're just rewriting the bits and pieces that they need and processing those byte arrays and stuff by themselves, which is good to see. Yeah, and one, one thing that I also like is that people are using the race detector when they test their code, which is... Um, mm. So Go is memory safe, which is great. But one thing that some people don't know is that it is memory safe until a race condition happens. If you have race conditions in Go, you might get memory corruption and remote code execution. Oh. So build your code with race. <laughs> Could that be abused or is it going to be random? So it, it can be abused. Actually, uh, in Google, we host a CTF every year. And one of the challenges of the finals of last year was to exploit a Go server by using a race. So there was you could exploit a race on the server and get remote code execution by just abusing this race. Wow. So it's doable. People did it. I think six teams solved it. So yeah, use race detector. <laughs> and what about fuzzing? I feel like fuzzing is also going to be really useful when it comes to this. Fuzzing is going to be really useful. And also, I think that the most voted proposal or the, the second or third most voted proposal on the Go public repo is about fuzzing. So I would love to see it in the standard library because fuzzing also makes it very easy to spot easy bugs and panics. I mean, like a denial of service is usually a bad bug. It's not a memory corruption, it's not an RCE, but you don't want your server to go down. And the fuzzer will try to feed complicated and input to your APIs. So you will find the DOS. Yeah, that was going to be my uh, unpopular opinion was that denial of services <laughs> is uh, worse than you think. Then It's like it's more critical than people think it, it is. Mm. Um, well, well, we'll get on to that. Before we do, though, Tom, I just wanted to ask one last question. What, what's your what's your mother's maiden name? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, good. Now you've passed the test. <laughs> Date of birth. <laughs> Nearly. No, it's passed. It's too quick. It's, it's too good. It is good. It's actually time, speaking of unpopular opinions, it's oh. time for our regular slot, Unpopular Opinions. So, Tom, you were saying your unpopular opinion. So, my unpopular opinion is that denial of service is a big deal. Oh. And that's because if you build this awesome service and no one can use it, you're probably going to lose quite a bit of money if it's profit generating. And sometimes that can impact companies more than, say, like code execution can. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's a fair one. I mean, do people think denial of service is just not something to worry about? Yes. Yeah. Most of the time, most of the time, <laughs> people's eyes glaze over when I start showing them bugs in their code with that. But. Ah. 
or they assume it's going to be handled, you know, at the edge of the network or something by the provider or something. Mm-hmm. One of the my worst moments, I was presenting a vulnerability to the client, and I showed that with a single packet, I could make the backend generate several tens of thousands of packets and take it down. And they said, "Well, it only goes down." Andre Pekka? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why did you build this? If it is fine, if it goes down, why is it up anyways? <laughs> Turn it off. I thought they were going to say, "Don't send that bit. Don't send that bit." Well, why would anyone do that? Yeah, no one's going to do that. Tell us some other things that people say that's infuriating when it comes to security. Because honestly, it's it's good to hear, and it's actually quite useful for people to learn. So I don't know, but like I, don't, I, th- I think I'm blessed to at a trend. The customers we work with, like they actually get it, and uh, mm. I don't get too much of the uh, I don't get too much pushback anymore. I think we're evolving, and that's a really nice thing to see. Is like I think we're evolving to where security and software development they aren't as adversarial as they used to be. I think we all sort of want the same goals. And I think at least, you know, for the most part, the developers I work with and talk to a lot, um, they really do care and they, and they, they want to fix things and they, they do t- they do take things seriously. But uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't really see much of this, like, well, why would anyone do that? That type of thing anymore. So you, it doesn't take much convincing then to tell people, hey, like if, because that code you wrote this way, you have a problem, like you don't have to prove to them that they have a problem. Sometimes. <laughs> That's another debate too. Um, is like we call it illustrating impact. But if you like describing mm-hmm. a problem versus having like an actual proof of concept, proof of concept will be better. I'm going to borrow that. Illustrative impact. Illustrating impact. Nice. Yes. Nice. I've had different experiences, probably at different <laughs> clients, because the most common questions that I got was, yeah, and then what? And you just prove that you can run arbitrary code on, on the server. And the answer is, yeah, but then what? And you're like, no, that's it. It doesn't go further than this. Is that not bad enough? Yeah, exactly. It's like, but what else do you want? It makes yeah. you coffee, but it's made with milk. What do you want from me? Yeah, I'm looking forward to I'm going to get the book. I'm, I'm really looking forward to number seven. Of the abusing databases one i don't know what if i'm going to be able to learn anything i've spent lots of years abusing databases i've <laughs> screamed blue murder to postgres for example yeah i'm working um, i'm working with the publisher of getting a discount code for everybody too so oh that'd be sweet if we pull that off we'll put it in the show notes for everyone nice one uh, isn't it the other way around that the database abused you in that case <laughs> yeah actually it's a good point that's yeah, why it's I a database's revenge. fault yeah <laughs> uh, but what sorts of uh, things, like, I mean, obviously, SQL injection and stuff like that is kind of well known, I think. But are there other things that you have to look out for? So I think, I think look out for uh, as far as regarding databases and security. Mm. Yeah, are there any common gotchas around databases that people... Don't have? store your encryption keys alongside your ciphers text. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And do not expose that to the internet. Those are two steps you don't have to <laughs> yes. make, especially together. Don't just do everything as root. Use permissions. Use the mm-hmm. least amount of privilege that you need. Don't store your encryption keys in the database. Yeah. Also, sign and validate, or sorry, validate, sign the, the ciphertext that you store in the database too. Don't assume mm. that just because it's in the database, it hasn't been tainted with. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, another one, another tip I like to do is I always have a field called password that I just put fake stuff in and just don't use it. So if anyone ever does look in the database, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like a honeypot. <laughs> yeah, don't encrypt passwords, hash them. Like don't use a secret right. key to encrypt the passwords. Yeah, I always get worried when a web service, if I've forgotten my password and then they just email me my password, they must have been storing it in some way that they can... There's a great, well, it's also great when you dump a database and then you see like 500 of the hashes of the password is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Ooh. So then you know they got like a default password, right? So Monkey. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Matt, oh. you should put nice try in the password column. Instead mm. of random stuff. I feel like that's just going to make the attackers angry, though. Yeah, that's an invitation. <laughs> I'll, give you, sorry, I'll give you guys a good security bug that you probably want to go. That everyone probably wants to go check their code out for. Uh, oh yes. And that's when you're going to email it. So maybe maybe you guys can answer. So when you're going to email a password reset email to a user, how do you get the domain name that you're going to email it to or from the link from? Ooh. So I assume you don't just get it from the email. 
address. So, so, so you're taking in, like, let's, let's say the password reset. So you're going to take in a user's email address, and then you're going to generate a link to your domain for your application with a mm. reset token. And let's say you, you're securely generating the token. Everything's good there. How do you decide mm-hmm. how to generate the URL? That's some sort of configuration in your application, right? Yeah, for sure. Maybe you pull that from database or from some sort of you know YAML file. You 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 that gets pulled and or and in, at runtime you read it and then boom. Yeah, that's the correct way. Oh, I nailed it. What we see a lot is people using the host header. Ah, Ooh, bad move. That way it works in test dev and prod, right? Mm. Yep. What? <laughs> I see. Oh. <laughs> and what's the problem with that? Uh, that they, well, the attacker can control the host header and then it generates a link to their own domain. So the user clicks them. Hey, Matt, what's the host name to your new app you're working on? I'd like to try try out some of these things oh, no, from no. the book. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes. I'm not going to... The book mostly focuses on like once you've got access to a database, what do you do? Pilfer. Yeah, you pilfer. You pilfer. Yeah, that's right. You find the goods. Mm. You find the ciphertext and, and the, mm. yeah, you find the banking data, things like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's good stuff, isn't it? That data, <laughs> all that data. <laughs> this is it. Any final thoughts, anyone? There, we're approaching the end, but we've got a bit of time. I have an unpopular opinion. Well, another one, Roberto. Roberto, let's have fire. Yours. Go would benefit from enums. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that's it. No, I, I want enums. Okay. Right, so you want to be able to specify a, a type that where there's only a set number of val- allowed values, compiler checked. And I want the switch to be exhaustive because in many in many Go applications, I found a way to bypass security by just specifying I don't know four in an enum that only expected three values. So you end up in the default, and the default does other things. Mm. So enums would be. A big security benefit, in my mm. opinion. But that's my opinion. It's a good one. Yeah, I don't know if I. Yeah, that's not unpopular. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you can do them, can't you? With the you create a type and then use the iota to iota in right. const block. So it's possible to do, but you don't. It's not the same, is it? Yeah, and then you parse form, you take the integer, use you convert it, and where's your type gone? Right. Mm. So you want proper enum support. Proper enums. Yeah, no, fair enough. That's a good one. That could be popular or unpopular. I don't know. I'm afraid we just don't know. Um, but we'll we'll find out for you, Roberto, and let you know, shall we? <laughs> Thanks. Put it in the links. <laughs> yeah, we'll put it in the links. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much to our guests, Roberto Clapis and Tom Steele. And Tom's book is available. Roberto, are you selling anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, Roberta's not selling anything, so that's fine. But no, but seriously, Tom, where can we get your book if if we're interested? Uh I think the best is No Search Press. Cool. Yeah. Or it's on Amazon too if you want to go that. And there will be a link in the show notes. Nostarch.com slash black at go. And uh, yeah, I'll be getting um, I should be getting a discount code for everyone, uh for the ebook at least. Well that'll be great, yeah. So if we can pull that off. Nice. That'll be awesome, Tom. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Roberto drilled that URL. It's nostarch.com slash blackhatgo. Use the code GOTIME for 30% off. That's all caps G-O-T-I-M-E, and it should work for you through May 15th. Thanks to Tom and our friends at No Starch for hooking our listeners up. If you liked this episode and you end up reading the book, holler at us and Tom on Twitter. He's at underscore Tom Steele and we're at GoTimeFM. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer with help from Johnny Borsico and Roberto Clapis. It was produced by Jared Santo. That's me. And we get all of our music from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by amazing people at Companies Who Get It. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for their continued support. Did you know we have a master feed? We do. It's your one-stop shop for all changelog podcasts. You get the changelog, you get brain science, you get practical. Hey, you also get JS Party. I hear it's pretty awesome. Check us out at changelog.com slash master or just search changelog master in your favorite podcast app. You'll find it. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week.
I went back and watched that. Neverending Story doesn't hold up, guys. Doesn't hold up at all. What do you mean? Which bit? <laughs> I haven't seen the, the movie. The movie. I thought it was air the, the, the graphics, you mean? <laughs> the, the movie the, doesn't hold up. I thought it was logically sound. I think the main issue is that it ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never want yeah, to. Yeah, you, you liked it that much. <laughs> it's a false advertising, right? Yeah. No, it's just it's fake. It's, yeah. Fake news. Yeah. It's clickbait, isn't it? My issue is it didn't end fast <laughs> enough. Right. <laughs> Giant flying dog. What kind of nonsense is that? Yeah, it's a love dragon. But <laughs> Matt's personally offended at this point. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "Come on, guys, it's my childhood." That's my. I mean, it was awesome during my childhood. I was I was excited to go tell my watch my, with my kids, and so I'm like, "Come on, kids, this is gonna be amazing." And then I sat there and I was like, "What is going on?" Well, right yeah, now? but they, it can't compare to like the Avengers stuff. You have to show them. No. Yeah. Wait, no, if no. you have kids, you have to show it them in real time as you experienced it. You have to like rate limit. We could just do an episode on the never ending story, but <laughs> gonna need oh, a bit man. more time. Yeah, someone, uh, Dylan on, on Slack's just said that Artex drowning in the swamp was the saddest moment in movie history. In movie history? It's almost as sad as when the Terminator slowly goes down into that lava. With the thumbs up. up. Yeah. The thumbs up I mean, is hopeful, you know. Yeah, but it gets you, doesn't it? Because you think, oh, it's really sad that that Terminator's dead. That machine sent from the future to, ma- to murder people. I feel really bad now that he's dead. So, it works. 